Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, it's Anoush here. We're doing something a bit different on the podcast for the next few weeks. Stephen, Alva and I have been delighted to record some special episodes with a very exciting guest co-host. The legendary writer, broadcaster and creator of brilliant TV comedies, including a particular favourite with our audience, The Thick of It, Armando Iannucci. We'll be running these special episodes for the next four weeks, as well as our regularly scheduled episodes on Friday mornings. And just a reminder that subscribers to the New Statesman magazine and website can get early access to all our podcast episodes. We publish them without the ads in our subscriber-only feed a day early. You can subscribe from just £1 a week at newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Right, on with the podcast. Hello, I'm Anoush. And I'm Armando. And in this special episode of the New Statesman podcast, we'll be joined by the Private Eye editor Ian Hislop and former senior civil servant and think tanker Jill Rutter to discuss accountability in British politics. Armando, welcome to the team. Thank you very much. I don't know what it says about me that I choose to take advantage of our newfound freedoms by sitting in a small room analysing changes in political discourse, but I hope to make that as fun as clubbing. (laughs) That's commitment. We're putting together four special episodes and in each one we're going to speak to people from both inside and outside the political machine to ask why things are the way they are and could they be different. We'll look at issues like why so many feel disenfranchised by politics, the move away from consensus, centralised power versus local organisation, and, in this episode, the issue of accountability, or lack thereof, in politics. So, Armando, why are we talking about accountability in this episode? Yeah, we were thinking of calling this Why Does No One Resign Anymore? And then several weeks ago, we had a massive resignation in the figure of Matt Hancock, which was then redefined as a sacking, retrospectively. But in that debate, I suppose, there has been an increasing awareness that that politicians can get away with a lot more now than before. And I'm interested to know whether, has political behaviour actually changed? Do they just not care? Or is it just that in the past they could have done these things, but with the advent of social media, cameras everywhere, and, and our interest in the personal and the private, that actually we're judging them by their behaviour in a different way now. 
and much more explicitly and we're much more we adopt now a kind of slightly more moral high ground and pick up on tiny little infringements or is it genuinely that the whole situation has changed and you can just do anything you like you know if, if donald trump can come along and literally say i could shoot a guy in the face in fifth avenue and still get elected before he was elected are there any rules anymore Mm, yeah, and I think before Matt Hancock came along and, and ruined everything, including our original concept for this episode of, of the podcast series, it did seem that there was a sense that shame had, had vanished entirely, didn't there? Particularly with the Dominic Cummings Durham visit where he didn't resign over that, but with ministers as well. Robert Jenrick's text to, to Richard Desmond over the development in West Ferry was a particular example, I think, where he accepted that, that it was unlawful, the decision to override the government's own planning in Inspectors on granting permission for that development a day before he would have had to pay millions of pounds to the local community. Then there was Pretty Patel as well, found to have bullied uh, civil servants, but Boris Johnson decided to ignore that finding and keep her in post. And even Matt Hancock himself, he was found to have acted unlawfully over COVID contracts, as was Michael Gove. So it seems that a lot of ministers and Dominic Cummings as an advisor were allowed to stay in their roles under this sort of Boris Johnson regime of shamelessness. Yeah, is it the Johnson doctrine, which is you can do what you like? To help us get to the bottom of this and even imagine how things could be different, we've invited a couple of special guests. Private Eye editor Ian Hislop and former senior civil servant and think tanker Jill Rutter. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, Anoush. Hello. Jill, Armando described it there as the Johnson doctrine. What do you think? Is that the case? Maybe it's a Johnson doctrine that you can do as he'd like. And I think one of the problems that you've got here is whatever you say about the Prime Minister, he's not that much of a hypocrite. So I think he actually doesn't feel obliged to apply standards that other Prime Ministers might have felt they should apply to their colleagues because the Prime Minister knows himself he probably wouldn't observe them. So I think that you have to slightly look at that and say, well, the Prime Minister is looking and saying, well, if I sort of do that to them because of that, then what about me? And I think that is one of the things you have to look at here because the Prime Minister in our system, and it's one of, I think, the big flaws in our system, is the ultimate arbiter. And we saw that over the Pretty Patel thing, that he had an investigation. He had this guy called Alex Allen, very respected, former senior civil servant, gave him the report, but all the independent advisor could do is advise he advises and the Prime Minister says, well, thanks, I don't really like your advice. And Alex resigns and Priti Patel doesn't. And I think that sort of sets a bit of the tone that it's a government where we're testing the limits of what you can get away with. And I thought that with Matt Hancock. Can Matt Hancock actually ride out being caught on CCTV in a compromising position with his aide, in inverted commas, his non-executive director. And he clearly thought he could. The Prime Minister, I think, that morning thought he could. But then actually, Matt Hancock, you know, we don't know whether he was advised by George Osborne that actually, you know, the quicker you resign, the quicker you might bounce back. Or whether he really thought, no, actually, I just can't, in all seriousness, front another press conference telling people to obey the rules when I say flagrantly don't. But I think they both seem to think on that Friday morning that actually, you could just tough it out. And we know the other thing the Prime Minister doesn't want as an ex-journalist is to serve up scalps to either the Labour Party or the media. So if you're under attack from the media or the Labour Party, it's almost like a protective shield. And that applies in spades if you're under attack from Dominic Cummings. And was it a resignation in the end, the um, Hancock resignation? Uh, yes, I mean, I think it was a res resignation. I think the Prime Minister was very keen to keep him and he was very keen to stay. I do think it's, it's good news that this 
the timing for this programme because as an optimist, I'm absolutely delighted that finally someone felt obliged to go. But it is an absolute benchmark of what in this country we think is serious. And if you watch the debate about this, a lot of people are very, very keen not to say, look, this man is just cheating on his wife with someone else who's also married. It's going to create a great deal of pain and future problems for both their families. But we don't care about that. We're not that sort of country. We're not prudy. What we're really interested in is the fact that they're not observing social distancing. Really? Is, is that why it's on the front page of The Sun? Is that why the public is interested in this scandal and say not green sill? And not hugely interested in the scandal about Hancock owning shares in his, his sister's company, which won a contract. They're mildly interested, but they weren't very interested. This is the one that broke through. The only one previous to this was Cummings. And the reason this one broke through is because people are cross and it's got sex in it. Um, (laughs) And for old people, they're thinking, blimey, you know, we weren't allowed to hug our dying relatives, but you're allowed to shag your assistant in who you're paying anyway, who you fancied at Oxford. Now you've given a job. And young people are saying, you told us we're not allowed to have sex with anyone we don't know, but you are. I mean, it's a fantastic intergenerational irritation centred around that basic human activity that everybody is interested in. So, you know, I, I don't say this merely as a prurient journalist. If you look back at the history of scandals, right back to, you know, Profumo, where everyone said, oh, it's a security issue in the 60s. I think Profumo might well have given away war secrets. No, he shagged Christine Keeler and everyone was really interested. And you have to, I think... Be honest. Sorry, I'm ranting now. No. Um, but what, what? We haven't been out for 16 months. No. <laughs> but I think what the public, you know, has to have a look at, and that's why I'm delighted this one worked, is is what they actually think. Yes. People are very keen to say this government doesn't have a moral compass. If anyone shows any signs of having moral compass, they go, "Ooh, you're so judgmental. It's not the 50s, you know." Really? Can't it just back off? So what? We'd all do it. Ooh. And that's why Boris got voted in. You know, I mean, I'm always very keen to blame the electorate because politicians never do. They can't. But I think, look at what you voted for (laughs) and then look at what he does. And then if you're surprised by that, then you should think again. Yeah, I think I think there was a lot of chin stroking and Westminster wisdom after the Matt Hancock images were revealed that he would never go under Boris Johnson because of Boris Johnson's own, you know, personal life and his own flaws and how everything is always priced in these days. There's a lot of Westminster wisdom around how, well, Boris Johnson's own moral failings are priced in. The voters don't mind or the voters even like it. And actually, so it turned out, as you said, Ian, it clearly was something that the public wasn't going to be able to stomach with this particular story. The sex was the kind of the catalyst, was the, mm-hmm. was the kind of the magic ingredient that set this off. The sex was really there to allow us to actually be judgmental not not about the sex but the fact that he was breaking his own rules that he was hiring a friend and paying her to oversee him while carrying out an affair it, it, it was, was, a it was the elements for of every other single corruption story in this <laughs> yes, government yeah. it had them all in it <laughs> it was um, the greatest su- hits <laughs> it was a super dense scandal yes. wasn't it <laughs> and then and then on CCTV too yeah well i think it's really interesting about whether it would have been so difficult for him if there hadn't been that photograph which was you know if it had just been a story that he was having an affair with his non-executive director i'm sort of quite intrigued as to whether matt hancock saw non-executive 
executive director appointments, which are a very, very dubious and murky area. And there's some slightly odd appointments, even though I don't think we necessarily think that it's just a sort of, you know, new version of a dating app for ministers of who do I quite fancy, who, you know, didn't I get to go out with when I was at university? Oh, yeah, I'll make them a non-executive director and then we can sort of, you know, see what happens over the board minutes. I think it's a really sort of odd system anyway. And we've had some extremely rum appointments you look at some of the people Michael Gove's put on the board of the cabinet office and you think would any objective process lead to these people being the people who are actually there to bring in commercial nows and to actually help ministers with oversight of their department and mediate relationships and not executive directors can do things like recommend you get rid of the permanent secretary you know the top official so they're quite important appointments but, but was it was this always happening or is this something uh, or have politicians changed now and think they can do this because they're not going to get blamed? well they're given license on these non-executive directorships these were a big sort of francis maud you know reform back in uh, 2010 when they decided they were going to create what were called ministerial boards to make sort of government more business-like. We have regulated public appointments. We have someone called the Commissioner for Public Appointments supposed to oversee, make sure the process is okay. He's already been raising red flags about stacked panels in some places. So I do think there's a sense that at the moment you've got a sort of system that sounds quite good in theory and then it sort of morphs through various sort of iterations and you look and think... Is that really what we meant that to do? Is this a sort of excuse to give people 15 grand to come into government and sit there? Isn't that because the civil service tries to set up regulatory frameworks and then the politicians go round the side and appoint their own people to them? So this is a failure. It's like the SPADs, the special advisors. It's the entire process of appointing outsiders under the pretext that they will bring experience and wisdom and independence. And then you just appoint your mates. And that system trying to subvert the civil servants. It's Cummings's straight doctrine. Blair was very keen on it. There's a history of this. And also, as is coming out in the, the Hancock scandal, uh, the super dense Hancock scandal, carrying on without any paperwork, doing everything by text and WhatsApp and, and nothing written down, nothing gone through the official channels. So there's no record of why these people were appointed or why they get the business that they have they've received. Yeah, is that something new, Jill, or is that have, have we had that kind of government under different guises over the years? And it's just so obvious now because as journalists, we get sent screenshots from these WhatsApp groups, or government advisers themselves release them on their own on their own websites. You can say actually, it's it's more dodgy than it was before because before you quite a lot of these things that we now see in WhatsApp would be just done through chats in the corridor. And certainly, as a sort of civil servant, one of the things you're always very worried about was when your minister went to vote because, you know, they would be nobbled in the lobby, things would come up at dinners and things like that. So I think it's always been lots of informal communication and we know sort of Westminster Whitehall's sort of gossip central. And in a sense, you're actually a bit more at risk now because we discovered from Dominic Cummings that all it takes is a vengeful aid with a screenshotting ability and, you know, <laughs> your innermost thoughts, you know, would he have been wired from sound actually pressing the record button as the Prime Minister described, Matt Hancock as possibly the most co- not the most competent health secretary ever. I don't know. I mean, it's a bit odd to say Prime Minister could just say that again so I can record it for posterity. So I think in Westminster and Whitehall now, there are a lot of people looking and seeing where the cameras are after Matt Hancock. 
and looking to see <laughs> what they actually put in WhatsApp. So I think Dominic Cummings may have had a bit of a chilling effect on the frankness of some of those WhatsApp conversations. I think what is really important, though, and you know, what the civil service does try to do is make sure that anything that ends up as an official decision is properly documented. And there's a clear audit trail of how was the decision taken and why was that decision taken? Because that is, after all, fundamental to what we're supposed to be discussing today, which is accountability. Because if you can't tell why decisions made, who made it, things like that, you know, we've already had them say, well, you know, this Lex Grinsill guy, well, he seemed to just pop up in the Prime Minister's office with a business card and a pass, but there's no documentary trail. That's not good process. The Dominic Cummings thing is interesting because, you know, it's great for us to see the texts. It's, a, you know, it's an amazing insight into what's been going on. But there's part of me thinking, isn't he breaching confidences? You know, I would hate anything that the four of us had texted to each other to, to come out, not because there's any buried secrets or this, someone said, but, but you engage in these things thinking that they're for private eyes and ears only. Uh, and and as you said, it, wouldn't the Cummings effect actually have this chilling effect on government in that ministers are going to be even more frigid and less open to conversation and discussion and debate? Well, perhaps they'll be less willing to appoint known lunatics um, <laughs> into positions of irresponsible power of who can then get their revenge by breaking all the rules. Having said Appoint me, I'm a rule breaker. I think all process in government is pointless and decisions should be made fast, brilliantly and on the basis of myself. It's quite a good idea not to have these people in government at all. I mean, in defence of David Cameron, who've been talking, you know, obviously... That's a sense of not heard in a while. <laughs> in defence of David Cameron, I mean, he did initially tell Michael Gove he couldn't appoint Dominic Cummings as special advisor and did say he was a sort of, you know, career psychopath. So that... Yeah, he may not have been able to spot Lex Greensill, but he did at least spot Dominic Cummings. You're listening to a special podcast from The New Statesman with Armando Iannucci and special guests Ian Hislop and Jill Rutter. When we come back, we'll look at some of the panel's favourite resignations and whether anything can be done to bring back accountability to politics. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This sort of shadow, I don't want to invent paranoid conspiracy theories, but this shadow state that you're talking about of these self-appointed advisors and board members and so on, it sounds like it's getting bigger and bigger and is actually having more and more sway over how decisions are made in in Westminster. I think particularly the pandemic as well has been a kind of part of the attack on process because every time they're found to have awarded a contract unlawfully or, you know, done something without the due process, they'll say, well, we were in an emergency situation, you know, we had to do it. We were facing something unprecedented. And that kind of line has carried on for, I think, a little bit longer than is probably fair. And so I wonder if the sort of Boris Johnson premiership crossed with the pandemic in this age of an attack on process has sort of created this perfect storm where accountability is is declining rapidly. I mean, when you look back under uh, under Theresa May, there were resignations of ministers. Do you remember Michael Fallon and Damien Green and Priti Patel all in that period at the end of 2017 went? And then it was sort of when Boris Johnson came in that Pretty he started Patel seeing... didn't yeah, she, exactly <laughs> go honourably and decently, No, we were waiting you? for her plane to land, weren't we? We were tracking her flight from She from was Kenya. called back publicly <laughs> to explain why she decided to have meetings off the record. My favourite resignation, if you remember, Estelle Morris, who yeah. was the education yeah. secretary, who resigned because she thought she wasn't good enough. I mean, yeah. that for me is the perfect. She's some sort of hero in the, pan- <laughs> in the pantheon. <laughs> if he ever erect a, a hall of fame for people who have resigned. Estelle Morris is is the standout because you look around and you think there are quite a lot of ministers who are very clearly not doing desperately good jobs. Can I mention just two things that might have added to this the sense politicians thinking that they can now get away with more than they might have done in the past. Two things. One is Brexit, which was very much a kind of sawed a lot of you impulse behind that d- debate and, and the vote. And Donald Trump. I don't know how much we in the UK have been affected by the fact that there was someone who said, there are no rules. I don't believe in rules. Or if there are rules, I'm going to just test them and test them and question them and see if I get away with it. And who has more or less managed it? Is that something that's actually inspired politicians here in terms of, well, that's something that we could do? You know, that it sort of works for him. Why don't we give it a go? Yeah, I think that's that's the really dangerous thing about the Trumpian attitude being conducted by politicians here, because you saw what happened with the illegal prorogation of Parliament. There was the attempt to break international law through the Internal Market Bill in 2020. And doing that kind of thing in Britain, where you sort of pretend that there are no rules, is particularly dangerous because of the fact that we have this unwritten constitution and mm-hmm. it's all on a gentleman's agreement and it's all sort of oh you know jolly good as long as you you know don't break convention or being oh you rotter you but you broke the convention oh well there's nothing anyone can do about our it. Un- unwritten constitution relies on us all being decent chaps but of course if you're not a decent chap then that's a recipe for disaster isn't it really? but i again i think that both of those those points historically in this country i think it's a little rose-tinted to imagine that people 
were caught and then wanted to go. Because I'm quite old, I remember Jonathan Aitken, who was a cabinet minister, who not only refused to go, but decided to sue the entire press for suggesting he was an arms dealer and that he'd been up to no good in the Ritz. And he said, I'll take the sword of justice. He had the backing of his cabinet colleagues. Everyone was absolutely behind him. And, oh, yes, he was an arms dealer and a terrific crook and went to jail, thank God. He wouldn't have done. He'd have been perfectly happy to carry on, and so would the rest of the government. So I, I don't think we should push it. I mean, Peter Mandelson in, in the Great Blair era had to resign twice, neither time terribly happily and very keen to come back again as soon as possible. I know this lot are really useless and, and appear to be more corrupt than ever, but I think we should remember we have occasionally been here before. Well, what does that say about the character of politicians then? Because I've always felt... <laughs> on the few that I've met, that they are a different species, that there is something maybe because now the career path in politics is to do politics, a political degree at university, and then become a researcher or work for a think tank or a junior and then a senior advisor and then become an MP, that actually they are sort of born and bred in politics and nothing else and have no real experience of, of you know, how the remaining 99.9% of us live. I think that, that's quite true. And, and the debate, even the recent debate about resignations, is people say, well, I have to resign because of the optics. I have to resign because my credibility's gone. Well, your credibility's gone because you did something wrong. No one says, look, I got caught. I behaved abysmally. And I have done for the last three years. <laughs> I really, I really should go now. That's what I want to see. I think there's this really interesting comment that was made during the Matt Hancock scandal by the, the sort of rather low-key Secretary of State for Justice, Robert Buckland, who just basically said, that, and I think this is where you do get to Trump, is that it's OK if the people go on voting for you. So if the only sort of sanction is that you'll only actually start caring about standards if it starts to exact some sort of electoral price. I think that's really, really dangerous territory because you want something a bit more absolute yeah. than that because that's just a competition with do we like you more or less than we like the other lot? And you don't well, want that to be your sole benchmark. <laughs> That is the bottom no, but, line. But I do want, occasionally but we do, have but, to. But we do, want some we do want some sense that there are sort of standards. But also, Boris's reasoning in the end was not, you know, Matt Hancock came to me and explained what had happened and I sacked him. It, was, it wasn't that. He actually said, I saw the story on the Friday and he was gone by the Saturday. Yeah. Which boils it down to what it is that matters, and which I, is which the is optics. optics yeah. And my. Optimism is that I thought he's going to go when I saw the statement put out by one of the victims of COVID group, which was a public group of people who've lost relatives who said, I was not allowed to hug my dying mother. You were allowed to grope your aid. And at that point, I thought a member of the public has put this brilliantly. The, the actual moral dilemma has been identified and that... I think, scared the Tory MPs who then made their approaches. And that, I think, scared the Prime Minister. And that is the only thing, is if the public... Do you remember in the old days they used to say, oh, the British public, it's having one of its fits of morality. It was a terribly sneery Westminster view on the public having a view on anything. I think, yeah, they're having one. 
Um, <laughs> and that I find very cheering. So you've brought us nicely to the end of our discussion, where I did want to speak a, a bit about some solutions to the accountability issues that we've we've brought up in this chat. There is the ultimate judgment of democracy, and then the the public opinion and how that scares politicians into doing the right thing eventually. Then, of course, we have the inquiry into into the, how the pandemic was handled coming up next year. Do we have any optimism that our politicians will be held to account through the sort of normal processes or, or are we in danger of, of, of losing that? I think probably not. No, I'm not optimistic because I think it's going to get worse. This sort of inner cabal of, of appointed advisors and board members is leading, I think, to a sense of hostility between them and the civil service. The fact that, you know, a senior civil servant in the Home Office can resign and take Priti Patel to court for bullying, you know, indicates that something is broken that's that's of a far greater dimension than anything I've, I've seen before. I think there has been a sort of chilling effect on ministerial civil service relations. We had last year quite a lot of senior mandarins being moved on. We had the so-called shit list being published in the Telegraph of people who were being targeted. And I think one of the problems is some of our system depends on civil servants investigating ministers. That's like seriously weird and depends on civil servants warning ministers when they're breaching propriety. I think there's quite a lot of interesting questions to be asked to the Permanent Secretary the Department of Health and Social Care about some of the things that have happened on his watch here. But it's quite difficult to be a civil servant who at one step is looking, you know, we talked about career politicians, but we also have career civil servants looking over and thinking, if I basically say no to this minister or say, no, there's a boundary there, no, you can't transgress there, you can't do this, can't do that, am I about to be shipped out and find myself there? And yeah, if I'm lucky, maybe I pass go and get a seat in the House of Lords and a few directorships or whatever. But actually, if I'm a bit lower rank, lower down, I probably won't. I'll just uh, find my career stymied. So I think it's quite difficult because these are Sort of such weak protections. My hope is that ministers actually sort of realise at some stage that actually they are better served by having people who will get them to observe rules, bits of process. There is a political price to pay for this. Actually, if that's the ultimate arbiter, that actually, you know, you do do better when you're not just repeatedly dogged by scandal after scandal. And you might never know the opposition might start to land a few punches on the government, which has been really where it's been sort of failing. Because the Prime Minister at the moment can just say vaccine, vaccine, vaccine. There will come a time when we're all inoculated against saying vaccine, vaccine, vaccine <laughs> all the time. And there might be a bit of breakthrough for some of these other things which say dodgy practice, dodgy practice, dodgy practice. And that's not the narrative you want to be fighting an election on. Maybe you need someone to actually stand up for the civil service as well, because they're, you know, they're not serfs. They are kind of capable <laughs> people. Most governments, especially if they're new governments, tend to come in with a slight sense of wariness and suspicion about the civil service, which is why they want to bring their, their own friends in and colleagues in. And, and actually, you've got this enormous machine there that you should be able to use as a resource. I think one of the things we do need to do is to have another look at the ministerial code and actually put that sort of outside the prime minister, because the idea that the prime minister is this paragon of virtue who sits in judgment on his colleagues, which is basically what the ministerial code does. Prime minister could just withdraw the ministerial code. He could write, rewrite the ministerial code, which is his, and says, bullying, yeah, fine by me, appoint your mates, 
what's the problem and stuff like that. I mean, that's not a terribly robust system. So I think something actually that managed to rewrite the ministerial code, do it through something where everybody says, yeah, actually, those are the standards we as a nation want in our public life, and then put it outside the prime minister to be judge and jury on his colleagues. I think that would really actually be quite a good place to start. Ian Hislop and Jill Rutter, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. That was better than therapy. And (laughs) thanks for the opportunity to serve. So, Armando, do you think we got to the bottom of anything in that discussion? <laughs> well, for me, the interesting insight, I think, is is that power struggle that's going on in all the ministries and in government between the civil service and the appointed cabal of friends, advisors, mates, colleagues, contacts, non-executive board members. It sounds like they're actually in competition with each other and that they're mutually suspicious of each other. I mean, that's troubling because I don't see where you go from there unless you try and sort that out and you try and inject an element of trust. You know, you bring people in because you think they can make a difference, but, you know, you work also with the team that you have because they're a major resource. You, you don't use one over the other. You you try and combine the two. And as, as Ian pointed out, there is an element of that to Dominic Cummings' argument about you know trying to turbocharge government by bringing in mavericks and so on and it just hasn't worked mm-hmm. uh, and and i think possibly because the starting point was we don't trust our own civil service yeah i mean the thing that struck me the most was that the prime minister is the ultimate arbiter of all of this behavior mm-hmm. and all of the you know misbehaving mm-hmm. which is quite worrying because as jill was setting out she wanted the the ministerial code to be taken out of sort of the prime minister's remit but when will that ever happen when will a prime minister ever make that decision and it comes back to the piece that you wrote about how we have this overmighty prime minister well the prime minister is is legislature executive and judiciary all in one person you know if you can imagine such a thing you mentioned a ministerial code, but it doesn't, you know, is it written in, you know, block capitals and engraved on any stone? It's changeable. You know, anyone can rewrite. Well, any prime minister can rewrite it. You know, the prime minister can get rid of the Supreme Court if he or she wants uh, in the same way that Blair set it up. I think that's the shocking truth that not a lot of people are aware of. It's just how powerful the office of prime minister is if that prime minister has a healthy majority in parliament. Well, that's it for now. Stephen will be joining you for the next bonus episode. What will the two of you be talking about then? We'll both be speaking with Dame Louise Casey and policeman turned protester Paul Stevens about the issue of activism and whether it's better to work inside or outside Westminster to make change happen. Great. I can't wait to hear it. Until then, bye. Bye bye. You've been listening to a bonus episode of the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and our special guest host, Armando Yanucci. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and don't forget to subscribe. You can watch video from this podcast on the New Statesman's YouTube channel and on the New Statesman website. This episode was produced by Adrian Bradley and our executive producer is Chris Stone. The music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 